And everybody else, if you have a Bible, you can open it to Matthew chapter 14, verses 22 through 33, or you can read along up on the screen. Either way, we're continuing this kind of, of, of mini-series. We're just going through the book of Matthew, but we're talking about how in this chapter, at least, the disciples are facing a, a life that is often overwhelming, and we all know what that's like ourselves. So I said this last week, but kind of want to say it again. It's really important that when we read God's Word, we read it as disciples. That is, apprentices of Jesus. This is very important. It's a sad reality in our world. Many people said in many different ways, not original to me, is we have this unique dynamic within our culture of you can like think that there are Christians and there are disciples. But in the way of Jesus, there was only disciples. There was only people who followed Jesus, and there was only people who sought to be with Him, to be like Him, and to do what he did. And these, let, these books that were written, like by Matthew, they were not written to be studied as textbooks. They were written to be given to the early church so they could say, what does it look like for us to live as followers of Jesus in this world based on the truth? And so if we are to read the scriptures rightly, we are to read them as disciples. And we are to remember that Matthew wrote these things under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. All of it is true. But he also wrote it under the Spirit's direction in view of the reality that this was going to be used not just as a theology textbook, but as a discipleship textbook. And so that's how we want to read God's Word together. And so let us read Matthew 14, 22 through 33 in that spirit. Immediately he, that is Jesus, made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost! And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it's you, command me to come out on the water. Come to you on the water, that is. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he, that is Peter, saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got in the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. Father, we thank you for the good news that we've already been able to share and to sing and to to step into this morning. We thank you that you are a God who calls us into worship for our joy and to live in the fullness of the humanity you've given us as your image-bearing people. We thank you that though we are great sinners, you are a greater Savior, Jesus. And we pray now not out of any sense of guilt or shame or fear, would we hear your word, but out of grace and love and mercy and the power of the Spirit, would you lead us to be more like you, to love you more, 
know your love more. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. There are two things that I really love to eat. I love hamburgers. That's my wife. She gets old. She doesn't want to eat them every week. And I like peanut butter sandwiches. So for whatever reason, that the two things you can count on. So I thought when I went to a restaurant and I saw that they had a hamburger that put peanut butter on it, that finally maybe the, the end of Jesus was near because the new heavens and the new earth were already upon us. But when I ate this hamburger, and some of you might like this, it was not good. At least it wasn't to me. It tasted exactly how it sounded. You know how you, some things, this chemical mixture of foods, just bring it out? To me, at least, the one that I ate, it just tasted like you slapped some peanut butter on a hamburger. It did not go together well, and if you like that, you can tell me how I missed it later. I'm definitely not a, a man of a developed palate. I have my palate's been curated on Chef Boyardee and Totino's Pizzas. So, <laughs> praise the Lord. Thank you. I see that hand. All right. Some things are hard to hold together, but are actually really beautiful together. Maybe even necessary. Of the simplest of those that we think of are truth and love, but what we see in our text today are two things that often we kind of have a hard time maybe bringing together, and that is the power and the grace of God, or the mercy of God. But if we cannot experience God and trust Him as one of both divine power, out of this world transcendent power, and, and near imminent grace and mercy and love, then we will miss out on who God is. We will miss out on who Jesus is. And He will become very irrelevant to the complexities of our everyday life. Dallas Willard writes, and I'm probably going to mess this up, uh, just kind of paraphrase him. Sometimes we see Jesus, no offense to cheerleaders here, as that clueless cheerleader who keeps cheering, go, let's win, when the score is 98 to 3. You know, and you're like in the last minutes of the game. It's like, I appreciate the grace, but it's a powerless grace. It feels meaningless. So some of you in here might be like, yeah, if I'm getting honest, a lot of times in my life, it looks like it's 98 to 3, and I'm just supposed to see Jesus over here saying, yay, everything's great, go, win. But we don't see him as really able to do anything. And then on the other side of the coin, we may see Jesus as this distant figure who's this deistic deliverer and destroyer who just kind of exists in the future, waiting in the wings one day to make everything right. And, and we need to be reminded that that actually is this deistic view of God. A deistic view of God is a God who is distant, a God who creates the universe and then just steps back and lets it run. That, that's the vision of God, really, that our country was kind of founded on. Don't mean to bust anybody's bubbles, but that was, you know, the God of a God that just is distant. And it's all in our culture. And this is why so many of us do not experience a life-giving relationship with Jesus in the stuff of everyday life. is because He is either clueless cheerleader Jesus or distant deistic destroyer and deliverer Jesus. Of powerless grace or graceless power, but either way, he is irrelevant. And so we have a hard time trusting in both the power and grace of God. But the whole story of God, 
from Genesis to Revelation, is a story of a God of power and grace. The whole, the whole story that we read here of Jesus is of a, of a Savior of both power and grace. And this is why he broke everyone's categories. Jesus, you're too powerful. You're too strict. No, Jesus, you're too gracious. You're too sweet. But there was a group of people who were overwhelmed by this and found life through it. And you know who that was? The broken people. The burnout people. The people who were just bored with going through the motions of a lifeless religion that did not experience the true life with God that we were created for. And so for us to grow as disciples, it means we have got to have an increasing trust of Jesus as more powerful than we imagined and more merciful than we imagined. And we see this encounter that they have in this text leading us in that. First, by trusting the power of his leadership and the mercy or the grace of his prayer. Notice verse 22. Immediately, this word immediately is used three different times in this text. Mark uses it all the time. Matthew doesn't do it this often, so it seems to maybe have some more immediate impact. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. Now this, again, you got to put yourself into the story so that you get it. What does it say he did? He said he made the disciples do this. Who in here likes to be made to do something? I don't like being made to do something. I'm that guy who would have did it before you told me I had to, and now all of a sudden I'm not going to do it even if I want to do it because you told me I have to do it. Well, Jesus tells his disciples they have to do stuff all the time. You think they wanted to do that? I mean, this is the guy who just fed thousands upon thousands. This is the guy who is their life. They've been out on the boat before, and this storm came, and Jesus was there, and guess what happened? The storm came. They wake Jesus up. He calms the storm. They don't want to go off and be alone, probably, from Jesus. Many times when Jesus goes to pray alone with the Father, he takes them with them. And we can only imagine what an awesome experience that is to be in the presence of Jesus talking with his Father. But it says here in the text, he made the disciples get in the boat and go before him to the other side. Jesus is a leader, and he leads with authority. The, the crowd said, wow, we've had a lot of leaders, but nobody who speaks with this kind of authority. Jesus makes plans. Jesus gives commandments. Jesus has expectations. If you've not realized it yet in reading the Gospels, Jesus is going to ask you to do things you don't want to do. Jesus is going to ask you to make commitments to things that you don't want to commit to because you want to leave your options open that something else better might come along. Jesus is going to say to his disciples at the end, here's what I want you to do when you make disciples. I want you to teach them to obey everything that I commanded. We don't like authority. We don't like commands. We don't like that kind of power on our lives. We're really allergic to it nowadays because there's been so much abuse of power. But notice what happens. When Jesus sends them away... Jesus doesn't just go and say, glad I got those disciples around to get this stuff done I need done. Now I'm going to go just forget about them because this is just all about me. No. It says, verse 23, after he had dismissed the crowds, 
he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when evening came, he was there alone. Jesus is not conducting a ministry of, of performance, of show, of virtue signaling, motivated by guilt to just get stuff done, to do things right. Jesus is living out of the overflow of a relationship of abiding with the Father. He loves God. It's his Father. And you know who else he loves? The disciples. And just so you don't think I'm like milking this for what I want to say, we have some pictures in the Gospels of what Jesus prays about sometimes. One of the biggest ones of those is John chapter 17. You can go read it later. Guess what he does? He spends a lot of his prayer praying for the glory of the Father through his mission, but he also spends a whole lot of his prayer that the disciples that are following him, and he even prays there, and the ones that are to come in the future would experience the same joy and intimacy and purpose in their lives as even he does. He is a Savior of powerful leadership, but of gracious and merciful prayer. I didn't tell Tim I was going to share this. I hope he's feeling nervous, letting me kind of letting this hang out there, right there for a second. All right. Uh, he tells the story of a, of a lady that he used to be a part of a church with who would go out to a, a park, and he can correct this later. I'm going to tell it kind of how I remember it. And, and she, would, she would make herself present in this park, kind of serve, maybe similar to ways that we think of our missional communities. And you can just imagine how this is viewed by many people, and I think this was in kind of the downtown Chattanooga area related. And you just, oh, there those Christians are again, Right? out here trying to save everybody and do good and you know they probably you know God's answer to the world you know you know some people are thankful when we do stuff right and let's just be honest a lot of people are rolling their eyes I mean that's that's just the reality one thing's different about this lady though is everybody or nearly everybody she met she she asked if she could pray for them and she wrote their name down in a, in her journal and got any information she could, like, how can I pray for you? We pray for my daughter, pray for my friend. And, and, and again, you can go to Tim for the, uh, for the authorized true story, this based on true events story, is later on in her life, I don't know the time span, she's like at IHOP or Waffle House or different places, and she sees people that she remembers serving and she's like, oh, I remember you. Pulls that journal out and says, how's your daughter doing? It's just like blowing people's minds. Oh, you, you weren't just out there doing it for your churchy thing. You, you actually care about me? Now, that, that's the type of life and mission that demands a gospel explanation. And if any of you in family meal are like saying, I don't know how to connect, I don't know how to make this meaningful, you're feeling kind of lost, there's one thing, right? Ask people how you can pray for them, write their name down, and actually go pray for them. We can all do that. But what Jesus wants to say to us today as well is that he has big commands for you. Right? I mean, there's no way of getting around if you want to know who Jesus really is. He's a Jesus who has like some pretty big expectations for your life. Right? If you know the gospel, it's not just sign up for heaven. Right? It's sign up for life now. 
And Jesus is saying, I want to re- you, I'm calling you to take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me. That is, I want you to reorient your whole life around being my disciple. And there's no plan B. That's what it means to follow me. But guess what he does then? He doesn't just leave you. He's with you. He's praying for you. We've sang about this this morning, that right now the Son of God is mediating for you before the Father by name. He is not using you. He loves you. So often we think about expectations, commands, even requirements that Jesus gives us to be his people. And then when we try to relay them, even within a church, like, like, hey, I think Jesus expects you to do this. All right, man, our legalism flags start flying, right? We get all nervous. And why is it? Because we, so many of us have been just used and abused by powers, authorities, and especially churches. But the way of Jesus is that, yes, we have things to get done, commitments to be made, but it is matched with the grace of care and the mercy of prayer. And this should flow over into our everyday lives. You have friends, you have children, maybe parents, your workplace, where there's stuff to get done, right? You got to look at people and you got to say, I need you to do this. Maybe in your dorm room or your suite or whatever. Man, I really, I really need you to wipe out the microwave after you make the soup. I'm tired of going in there to make my food. Is, is all your roommates hearing you complain? Or would they ever catch you praying for them? Your spouse, your children, lots of things. Hey, we got to get this done, right? I need you to step up. I need you to do this. Are the calls to action met with times of prayer for their heart? Because you love them? In our church, in our missional communities, in our fight clubs, there are commitments to be made. There are expectations. We hope they aren't like from sort of external religious system, but because this is what we see Jesus doing and we just want to do it. And we've got to call people to live into the commitments they've made in the way of Christ. But God protect us from a heartless, careless, robotic way of ministry that we never pray for the people that God's called us to love and to lead. We can have both together because Jesus did. Power of leadership and the power of grace. But also we trust the power of His miraculous divinity and the grace of His comfort. We see this in verses 24 through 27. Jesus powerfully shows up and graciously lifts them up. Notice verses 24 and 25. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. So they they have this problem. So Jesus said, I want you to go on. They go out onto the water, and all of a sudden, some kind of storm comes up. Now, the text here really doesn't like exaggerate that this was like a storm where their lives were threatened. It's not there. But whatever it is... It's probably concerning, right? They're, they're being beaten by the winds and the waves. They're being driven. They maybe feel lost, but we know one thing is for sure. They're probably feeling more distant from Jesus as time goes on, right? He has sent them away, and now they are experiencing 
this dangerous situation. But they're not afraid of that. Or at least the text doesn't say. What well, it says they're afraid of is when Jesus shows up. He comes walking to them on the water, verse 25 says, in the fourth watch of the night. This would have been in Roman measurement of time, 3 to 6 a.m. And his coming to walk on the water. This is not a, a throwaway phrase description of Jesus as walking on the sea. He is coming to them as the one who is God. Uh, we're, we're often not reading the text like these early guys would have who would have been immersed in the Old Testament scriptures. But, you know, there's that little verse you might remember about it, the way this whole thing gets started, where the Spirit of God is hovering over the face of the waters. There's the story of a God who comes to His people in their fears, where they feel like they've been left alone, even though He told them to go out to my promised land, and they meet a sea that they cannot face, and He divides the sea. There's the God that the psalmist celebrates in Psalm 77 and other places that says He walks upon the waves. There's the victorious Lord of Job and the prophets who not only walks on the waves, but it says He tramples the seas. When they see Him, it says they are afraid in verse 26, and they cry out, it's a ghost. They're afraid, but immediately Jesus speaks to them saying, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. He gives them divine comfort. Take heart, take courage, don't be afraid. But he says it is I. And again, I don't think I'm pushing the text beyond its bounds here. These early writers would have read a Greek version of the Old Testament known as the Septuagint or the LXX. Some of you know what I'm talking about, but if you don't, now you know. And this is the phrase, the language that had been used behind all of the story of God where God showed up and said, I am. In the Greek, ego, a me, I am. Do not be afraid. In the middle of their fears, Jesus shows up to them as one who is so powerful walking on the water, they are afraid and so comforting that they can take courage. One commentator said, His walking on the water is thus presented, like the other nature miracles, as a practical response to a difficult situation, rather as a wonder just performed for its own sake. What's he saying? This is amazing. Jesus didn't go throughout his life setting up to do magic shows. Sometimes they tried to get him to do that. Do something. Do it. Give us a sign. Jesus didn't go around and just say, hey, you want me to show you something cool? Watch me turn this rock into bread. No, he... When did he do that? When they needed it. Jesus didn't just say, hey, y'all want to see something cool? Watch me walk on water. No, he walked on water when they needed him to show up. I, I was thinking about this and ways that we could relate with, and I just imagine having like a, a robot for a mother or a father. You'd be like super grateful they could provide things. Some of you kids or students are probably like, yeah, I'd, I'd prefer that. Provide for me, protect me, right? But I don't have to do the whole relationship thing. I've said this before, but in one of my super jerkish moments as a husband, I've often said to Cassie, can we have this conversation like robots? Anyway, 
take out the need for relationship and grace and mercy and figure out where we're eating. But anyway. Uh, but a relationship where there's provision, protection, maybe even direction and decision, but there's, there's no comfort. There's no intimacy. We may think we want that, but we don't. It's not what we're made for. and uh, Sometimes we're thinking about our families. We say we only remember the bad things. But I, I do remember the good things. I was telling my dad yesterday, he said something like that. Well, yeah, it's easy to just remember the bad things. And I thought, well, I remember the good things. And I didn't tell him this, but one of the things I remember that I loved from my childhood was when we would, I'm going to say wrestle for y'all's sake. We would wrestle, not wrestle. That's how I would normally say it, but I get corrected. When we would wrestle. When I was growing up, for whatever reason, I was afraid of my dad. If you knew my dad now, you'd think, wow, he's like the nicest kind of guy in the world. And he was, and always was. But, uh, but when I was little, I was kind of afraid of him. And I was the oldest child, so you younger children, you can be thankful your parents mellow out a little bit sometimes as time goes on. But anyway, I was the oldest, right? No mellowed yet, for sure. And to me, he had like these Clint Eastwood eyes and his bottom lip when he'd get mad. You ever seen Clint Eastwood, you know, just got that glare? That's kind of how I, as a little kid, I was like, ooh. But, but some of the best times is when me and my brother, who's the closest to me age, we would wrestle in the living room floor with my dad. And I just remember thinking, he could kill us. But, but we were the ones killing him, trust me. The knee to the kidney off the top of the couch, that was my favorite move. And we would, and we would run around him. You know, we were like, I don't know what was weird Lord of the Fly stuff, like chicken, and he's laying on the floor, you know, like acting like he's dead. But then all of a sudden, he would like burst up with this energy and just grab us. And before I know it, I'm on the ground, pin, my brother and me are both pinned somehow by him at the same time. And he's saying, say uncle, say uncle. I still don't know where that comes from. But anyway, some of y'all know that maybe. Say uncle. And boy, did I feel close to him in that time. I mean, I remember that. I don't just remember the bad things. I remember being in the presence of someone who could destroy me and yet who I knew so loved me. And I can still feel the warmth of his skin. Because it was, I don't know, I'm not trying to get weird here. But anyway, there's something special about the experience of power and grace. And this is what we have even more in Jesus. We have a Savior who loves us with miraculous power that is matched with divine mercy. Some of you may be feeling drifted away, beaten, or distant from him. And maybe you're like, yeah, I feel that way because he called me to go like these disciples and go do something. And I obeyed him, and I went, and now I'm thinking, where the heck is he? And you feel that way maybe at school, your marriage, your family, your work, your church. But the good news is, is he's not left you alone. He sees you, and he's coming to you, and he may come to you. He may be with you in a way that you don't expect but what we're called to see, just like the disciples, is just because you feel overwhelmed about what He's called you to do does not mean you're in the wrong place. 
I'm going to say that again. Just because you feel overwhelmed doesn't mean you're not where he's called you to be. That's actually normally what happens in the Bible. He's going to call you to go to a place where you're going to need him to show up with his divine mercy and divine power so that where you are is able to be met. And he will show up with you as the same I am that was with Moses and with the same do not be afraid as was with Joshua. So we trust the power of his leadership and the power of his grace, the power of his divinity and the nearness of his comfort. But we also trust the power of his helping us and the grace of his holding us. We see this in 28 through 31. Notice verse 28. This is amazing. Peter said, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. Now you might think here, is Peter crazy? But remember, what is discipleship? Discipleship is not a class you attend where you learn things about God. Discipleship is you learn to be like Jesus and do what he did. This was actually a very natural thing. Jesus is walking on water. I'm his disciple. So what do I get to do? I get to walk on water. Peter, Peter gets it. I think that's why Peter gets so upset a lot of times. Because when later when Jesus is, Peter's going to get upset with Jesus, why is he going to get upset with Jesus? I'm going to go die. What does Peter know? Well, if you have to be willing to do that, and we're your disciples, then we're going to have to be willing to do that. So Jesus, don't do that. So here Peter goes. And Jesus says, come. That's amazing. Let's do it. Love the energy. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. Now, Jesus is walking on water is amazing, right? One could argue the, the main point of this text is the supernatural, miraculous divinity of Jesus as the Son of God. But let's not understate the fact that Peter walked on water. This guy ain't the Son of God. This is like me and you walking on water. I hope that makes you nervous. It makes me nervous. I ain't going to go out and try to walk on the water today. Peter goes, but verse 30, but when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink out, he cried, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Peter steps out in faith to do what Jesus did, and yet along the way, Peter becomes overwhelmed at his circumstances, he becomes distracted by the wind and the waves. He, he falls into doubt. And one commentator says this, and I think it's so true of him and so true of us. His fear functions as a self-fulfilling prophecy. Man, there's a lot to unpack there, but just take that home with you today. How does your fear function as a self-fulfilling prophecy? Because he got stuck in his fear, I'm going to sink. What happened? He sunk. Instead of putting his eyes on Jesus as the one who said, come. And yet, how does Jesus respond? Time to drown, buddy. I don't do doubters. I don't do weaklings. 
who can't keep it together. Making me look bad, Peter. They're going to question my power. Now what does he do? As soon as Peter says, Lord, save me, immediately he saves him. Power and mercy. Charles Spurgeon is one of those heroes of the faith that honestly I could care less reading about because I can't do it and it just discourages me. Here's why. He had preached 600 plus times before he was 20 years old. His sermons sold approximately 25,000 copies a week and were translated into 20 languages. And this is a long time ago, no internet. He just read six books a week in order to prepare for his sermons and sharpens his mind. He read Pilgrim's Progress over 100 times. He saw over 14,400 people added to his church during his ministry. And, you know, in his prayer time, he founded a pastor's college, ran an orphanage, trained approximately 900 men for the ministry, produced more than 140 books, edited a magazine, responded to 500-plus letters each week, often preached 10-plus times each week. His son says, there was no one who could preach like my father. He, what he did, he did with quality, not just quantity. I can't do that. Maybe you can. I'm thankful he did. I've actually read stuff. I like it. It's good. But what most people don't know about Charles Spurgeon is he lived with deep depression. And, and I don't think even of just the, the sort that you might say is I had a bad mood for a little bit. In one sermon he said, you may be surrounded with all the comforts of life and yet be in wretchedness more gloomy than death if the spirits are depressed. You may have no outward cause whatsoever for sorrow and yet if the mind is dejected, the brightest sunshine will not relieve your gloom. There are times when all our evidences get clouded and all our joys are fled. Though we may still cling to the cross, yet it is with a desperate grasp. There's so, so much more I could read here. He speaks of slipping into this bottomless pit of darkness where his soul bleeds in 10,000 ways and dies over and over again each hour with no reasoning or no remedy to be found. Once he put into a lecture to his students, as well fought with amidst with this shapeless, undefinable, yet all beclouding hopelessness, one affords himself with no pity when in ca this case because it seems to be unreasonable. And yet the troubled man is, even in the very depths of his spirit, the only hope is to have a heavenly hand reach and push it back. Sadly, we may have been thought that Jesus is a Savior who only uses people who can maintain a perfect kind of faith. Jesus does not throw out the doubters. He lifts them up and he disciples them. He saves him and then he speaks to his doubt. And you might say, well... Yeah, he did it to Peter once, but he's not, he wouldn't do it again, and I do it all the time. We'll just keep reading the story. Again, in just a couple chapters, this guy's going to, Jesus is going to say, here's what I came to do. He's looking for support, and what is Peter going to say? No, Jesus, you can't do that to the point Jesus is going to call him Satan. 
Oh, wow, well, I guess if he's having satanic thoughts, right? Hear what Jesus says. Not just doubts. Peter's went, oh, yeah, you think that's great? I doubted you here. How about I have a satanic doubt? And Jesus still says, let's go. I love you. If you don't think that's enough, he's going to deny him three times at the point of his greatest need. Is Jesus going to say, I'm done, I'm finally done with you? No. Because unlike Judas who runs away, Peter runs to him. When he sees him on that boat as resurrected Lord, what is Peter going to do? Everybody else is content to wait on the boat to get to the shore. What Peter, doubting, satanic doubting, drowning Peter is going to do is he's going to dive in the water and swim to Jesus. And then even later in his life, old Paul's going to have to rebuke Peter for walking out of step with the gospel. But this dude won't quit. Not because he's great, but because he actually is wrestling and experiencing who Jesus is in both his power and his mercy. Who experienced more of Jesus in this text? Peter or those disciples who played it safe on the boat? It's the one who dove in the water when they saw him making breakfast on the beach. Who's the one who will lead the church in the book of Acts? Proclaiming with power the gospel in the face of his own immediate martyrdom. It's Peter. Nothing can grow faith like failure that leads to a deeper relationship with Jesus. Please go and fail trying. That's the way of discipleship. You don't learn to ride a bike by a PowerPoint. You don't learn to ride a bike by a sermon taught on how to ride a bike. You're not going to learn how to experience a deeper life of trust with the power of grace in Jesus in here this morning listening to me. You're going to learn it by going out and trying and failing and finding Him there, reaching down and grabbing you up faithfully every time. That's how you're going to learn it. Nothing grows faith like failure that leads to a deeper relationship with Jesus. And they see it. And what is their response? Verse 32, when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. I guess, I guess Jesus carried Peter to the boat, right? So just imagine, here he's walking on the water holding this guy. Man, that's an awkward situation for a strong, tough man to be in, in, right? I'm walking on water, man, and now I'm having to be carried like a little baby. If that doesn't show you the toughness and tenderness of Jesus, that's what he wants to do to you tough men and women out here, right? Is he wants to have to carry you in front of everybody. That'll scare you, right? I mean, just think about that. Here are all the other disciples on the boat and tough guy Peter's having to be carried by Jesus. But what is their response? We think everything's about us, don't we, right? Don't, don't nobody see me fail. See nobody see me fall. Be needy. We're just not that, we're just not that important. We're important, right? But like everybody's not out to get us. 
They don't even notice that. What do they notice? They notice Jesus. They say, truly, this is the Son of God. He walks on waters and He carries weak doubters on the waters with Him. They worship Him. This is the type of community discipleship that we are after. Where Jesus is worshipped. Where He's the hero of the story. Not our leaders, not our structures, not our whatever's. Jesus, truly He is the Son of God. We're going to have to go out and we're going to have to try and we're going to have to fail. We're going to have to be carried by Jesus and we're going to have to show the world that He loves doubters, He loves the weak, He loves the needy, He loves the broken. There's that classic, those classic 80 movies as we become, go to the table. What a strange sentence to say. You know the, the cliche movies where it's like the person dates the person, but they don't really want to, but they have to for some reason, and then they like fall in love, and then at the end of the movie they find out that they did it because they were forced. And it's like, oh no, you didn't really love me. And they're like, oh, but I actually do. That's, they're milking that one. There's probably a screenplay being written for that right now. And you're just like, oh my goodness. But I, I wonder, is, is that how you view your relationship with Jesus? With God? Like, I know He really loves me, but He has to. And I think Jesus would want to say to you in your doubts this morning, say this to you as God who walks on the water. You got the story all wrong. I've not fallen in love with you in the middle of this story. I've actually the one who loved you all along. As I said earlier, something that's a big revelation to many of you guys maybe is that God doesn't just love you. He likes you. In your doubts, in your depressions, in your despair, he wants you to learn to trust his authority and his mercy, his power, and his grace. Now, I, might, I can definitely live without peanut butter on my hamburger, but I can't live without the power and the grace of Jesus together. Neither can you, neither can our church. And to grow as disciples means we grow in an increasing experience of Jesus and more powerful and more merciful than we could ever imagine. Father, we thank you for this good news. We pray now as we come to the table that we might taste and see your power and your mercy, your grace and your truth. Thank you, Jesus, that you've commanded us to do this. And at the same time, you will meet us there not to use us, but to love us. We pray now, God, you would help us to do this as each of your believers partake of it, who've been baptized in obedience to your commands, and as those who are not yet followers stand around with us, may they hear the gospel that we share together as well. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.